This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation uh, event and webinar, the first of the new uh, term. Now, the last 10 years has made anyone that was very certain about things hopefully learn their lesson uh, that everything is uncertain, including your personal life, definitely public policy uh, making. Them, but some things are a bit more certain. So it's reasonably certain we will get a new prime minister next week, subject to kind of something really bad happening to the Queen, which must not happen. Then, uh, it's reasonably certain that we'll have a new prime minister, and that new prime minister is going to have a nightmare, right? Because the world is difficult. There, and being a prime minister when the world is difficult is a very challenging task, because despite what most people seem to have decided about the job, it's actually quite hard. And good people should do it, because it's quite hard. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about the background, the big picture background to what that new prime minister is going to be facing in terms of living standards. Obviously, the big thing, which is the energy crisis this winter, but then setting that in a broader context of what's the background that households have been living with running into that crisis. And assuming we cope with it, what does it look like as you emerge from it? Uh, and the main reason we're doing that is to highlight that the job facing the prime minister isn't as difficult, only as difficult as can we get through this winter, although that is the, the issue that they should focus on for their first uh, um, months in office, but is what do we do about the fact that this is a country that is not driving sustained living standards growth for its population and may not have done so for an entire two decades by the time we get to the middle of this, uh, the middle of this decade, which is the time this person will have had in office, most likely, unless they're very, very bold and like to call an election as huge energy bills turn up on people's doorsteps. So that is the plan this morning. Um, there's a report out, as I say, laying out the background to the new Prime Minister on living standards uh, this morning from the Foundation's website, so check it out. But first of all, you're going to hear from one of the authors, uh, Lolita Try, who um, is going to give you a presentation drawing on that report. But you should still read all of it because she's done lots of great work, along with her co-author, Adam Corlett. Then you're going to hear from Robert, Robert Shrimsley, who's the UK Chief Political Commentator at the Financial Times, and we all learn a lot from, not always perkily, the, um, uh, um, because of recent British politics, obviously, uh, not because he's not a very perky person. Um, so you, we're going to hear from, and then we're going to hear from Claire, who's a new chief executive, of, well, not new anymore, but newish chief executive of Citizens Advice, and you've hopefully all been listening to over the course of the last year because she's been keeping us all in touch with what the really important work that you do uh, on the ground is telling us about the state of the country. And then we're going to hear from uh, all of you. Those of you in the room can raise your hand and ask questions, please do. And as ever, you can log on to uh, Slido if you don't want to raise your hands in the room or you're in using the interweb to watch this. It's hashtag living standards and there'll be some polls to vote on over the course of the event. So that is the plan. Kick us off. Thanks, Torsten. First, I'd like to start off by thanking my co-author Adam for his work on this report. So the first thing I'll talk to you about today is what's driving the current and forthcoming cost of living crisis. The first thing is energy costs. So last week, the price cap for October to December of this year was announced, which is an increase of 80% on the current price cap. And this has led Cornwall Insight to increase their price cap forecast for 2023, as you can see in this chart. Their forecast for early August 
showed the price cap peaking at close to £4,000 next year. And then their forecast later on in August showed the price cap peaking at £6,600 in 2023. And to put that in context, a typical energy bill last year was around £1,500. And this year it's projected to be £3,750. We do know that gas prices are volatile and they have been rising quickly, but we also know that they can fall back as quickly as they've risen. And rising energy bills feed into high inflation. Inflation's at 10% at the moment, which is already a 40-year high, and it's set to rise, as you can see in this chart. In our modelling, we use Bank of England forecasts, and in early August, they projected that inflation would peak at 13% in the fourth quarter of this year. But since then, price cap projections have rapidly increased. And this means that more recent inflation forecasts have predicted a later peak and a higher peak. So for example, City have projected that inflation will peak at 18.6% early next year. And although headline inflation is high and it will continue to be high, it's even higher for lower income households. And we're projecting that the lowest income households in October will experience an inflation rate of 15% compared to just 11% for the highest income households. And this is because energy costs and food are driving this current bout of inflation. And we know that lower income households spend a higher proportion of their incomes on energy and food. Although at the moment the labour market is tight and nominal wages are rising, high inflation does mean that real wages are falling. We're already facing real wages falling at their fastest rate since the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977. And they're forecast to fall until mid-2023, as you can see in this chart. And by that point, all the real wage growth that we've gained over the last 20 years will be wiped out. And a supply shock, like the cost of living crisis, can wipe out 20 years of earnings growth because the last 20 years of nominal earnings growth have been weak due to low productivity. Next, I'll talk about how all of these factors impact household incomes over the next few years. Our projections that I'll show you today show what would happen to household incomes and poverty rates if no further government intervention took place. This year, despite government support announced earlier in the year, median household incomes are set to fall by 5%, which is one of the highest rates on record. And next year, they're set to fall by 6%, which is the highest rate on record. As you can see in this chart, targeted support measures do reduce the income hit for lower income households this year. But although government support did help protect lower income households this year, its removal next year means that incomes at the bottom of the distribution will fall the most by 10% for the lowest income households. 
And this comes despite a relatively high expected benefit uprating of 10%. Looking ahead to 2024, inflation will have come down, which means income growth returns. And households on lower incomes will benefit from a relatively high benefit uprating of 10%, which will help boost their incomes. Now, household incomes across the distribution are facing a bit of a roller coaster this year and next year. So it's worth us looking at the effect of both years put together on incomes. Over the next two years put together, average incomes are set to fall by a record 10%, which is the largest income fall in at least a century. Across the distribution, the larger fall for high income households in 2022 and the larger income fall for low income households in 2023 even out to a consistently large fall across the distribution. Looking over this parliament as a whole, incomes are set to fall by 7% on average, which is by far the largest income fall we've seen in a parliament. And this is the first parliament on record where incomes all across the distribution will, are set to fall and will fall significantly. This chart shows the proportion of people in absolute poverty, which is a fixed measure of poverty. And we would normally expect this to reduce over time as incomes naturally grow. However, 3 million more people are set to be in absolute poverty by next year, meaning in total 14 million people will be in absolute poverty. And absolute child poverty is set to rise by 45% between last year and next year, which is an increase of 1.3 million children. Relative child poverty, which is a measure that changes every year based on average incomes, is also set to keep rising. And we project by the end of the forecast period, it will hit highs not seen since the 1990s. So today I've shown you a lot of problems for the new Prime Minister, so now it's time to talk about some solutions. We need immediate action on energy bills, and this can come through either a social tariff, where prices are lower for lower income households, or by lowering energy prices for everyone, while recouping some of these costs through increasing income tax by 1p. Looking ahead to just after this winter, benefit uprating must go ahead both next year and the year after, and it should be done using October's level of CPI inflation instead of September's. This is so price cap increases in October are taken into account in inflation and benefit uprating better reflects the amount of inflation that households will experience. In the long term, to ensure better income growth, the UK needs to increase productivity and reduce inequality. So households are better protected when the next crisis hits. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed.
it's a bit unfair to start to end on the next crisis. We're kind of just getting emotionally used to this one, but thanks. The, um, look, if you take anything from that, which I hope you took a lot, but um, is that you've got a short and a, a medium and a long-term issues that we're wrestling with. So the short term's obvious, energy bill sitting, hitting £700 a month, a month in January, which remember we would have thought sounded like a low annual energy bill until recently, but an, an average a month in January. Over the two years, it's twice as bad as the financial crisis, over this year and next. So anyone that thinks you just ride through this and then everyone feels popular in government, it's twice as bad because you keep getting the income falls next year. Because remember, we are in the phony war of this stage of this crisis. No one's paying these bills. Well, people are paying these bills, but they're not paying the astronomical bills yet. They're paying the annoyingly large bills, right? Which are very bad for low-income households, but the middle-income part of this crisis is ahead of us. And then two lost decades of wage growth. Again, none of us thought that was possible. None of us thought the first decade was possible. We've kind of all now got used to that. We're on course for two lost decades. So that is what the report is basically uh, laying out. So that's lots of perkiness. The, um, so we didn't really need the next crisis thrown in to push us over the edge of the end. Right, Robert, what's going to happen? Thank you. Um, I'm feeling still stung by the thought that I'm not perky enough all the time. You are always and, and, perky. You know, I'm now going to be specially perky. Personally very perky. <laughs> okay, perky. Pink and perky is the FD. Well, well, um, so... Um, I think one of the important things to think about is when one looks at the position that presumably Liz Trust is going to be in uh, from the middle of next week is that this energy package, whatever or, she... Or Rishi Sunak. Indeed. It's a contested or, election. Or Rishi Sunak. That's why I said presumably. Okay. See? Okay. Um, this energy package is going to... What, what she does in these first couple of weeks on the energy crisis is fundamentally going to set the entire tone of her premiership. It's going to define her premiership. And if she gets it wrong, it's done already. And if she gets it right, she has a bit of a tailwind. If she gets it wrong, she will probably never recover. And I think the one thing that she has on her side in all of this is a fair degree of under-expectation that people do not expect. I mean, I, I see some people laughing, but I'm actually serious about it. People are not expecting anything much from her. They think that she's going to go about this the wrong way and that whatever she does will be underwhelming. And that is, in political terms... An opportunity because if she, the country doesn't really know Liz Truss you know, they've, they've seen a bit of her on television now they don't have a clear sense of her they don't know much about her they're just beginning to tune into a new prime minister they don't really know and they're going to start forming their real opinions of her in the next couple of months if she comes in with an energy package considerably higher bigger more substantial more all-encompassing than anybody expects she will get a political tailwind that will do her an enormous amount of good and help for quite a long time in what are going to be, as you say, very, very difficult periods. So if she surprises substantially on the upsides, then there is a big political dividend for her. The problem is that in doing so, she has to, she has, she has to choose between doing the things she actually believes and has told her Conservative Party electorate that she believes, and doing the things which are probably politically and socially necessary. And it is going to require her to do some things she doesn't really think governments should do. And that's the horns of the dilemma that she is on. And that's why this moment is going to define her premiership. Um, she has, as I think everybody knows, she's won by being the candidate of the Conservative Party right, by being the candidate of the small state, of low tax, low regulation conservatives. And that's a position she's comfortable in because despite having served in every government since 2010, that is roughly what, where she is personally. You know, and, and those who dealt with her over the years 
would, would talk to her in private and hear her fuming about some new bailout or some tax rise or whatever it was. So that, that is who she is. You, you are seeing a reasonably authentic Liz Truss in this leadership election. Um, she doesn't want to be a prime minister who, in her own words, throws handouts to people. She doesn't want to be a prime minister who encourages people to think that the government is the solution to their problems. She believes the opposite. And she's also, I said partly it's a reflection of her beliefs, partly it's a reflection of the things she ha- person she's had to be to probably become prime minister, because she has become the candidate of the Conservative Party, right, of all the people I've described. And these are not people who are terribly forgiving. These are people who are constantly on the lookout for the next betrayal. The next betrayal is always only, you know, 18 months to two years away. So... They'll be waiting for her to sell them out because all prime ministers always sell them out. Um, it's, it must be rather like being an Ulster Unionist, actually, being a member of the Conservative Party, right? They're just waiting for the government to sell, sell you out, even though you actually support it some of the time. Um, and so, and, and she has an extraordinarily large cohort of ex-ministers on her backbenches, a large number of people with no particular reason to be loyal if they disagree with what's going on. So... She's their candidate, they got her in, they'll help her for a while. But if they start to think that she is selling them out by doing things, by tacking to the centre or doing things that the country wants rather than what they want, that is a problem for her. So she's got that um, chain on what, how far she can move. She also has to invest in energy security. Um, there's a long-term issue here. And even though I think the next couple of years are going to be characterised entirely by short-term thinking, uh, simply because of the lack of funding available, They do have to invest in energy security. And again, there's a political problem here as well as an economic one, which is that invest in energy security for the people who put Liz Truss in place essentially means resiling from the net zero agenda. It means keeping coal-fired power stations going longer than we intended to. It means scrapping, obviously, the renewables levy, which she's committed to. And I, I find it very hard to see how that levy ever comes back, by the way, until we're way, way, way down the line. That, that money is either going to have to be absorbed by central treasury funding or it's going to slide away. Um, this is an opportunity for them. We'll see fracking back and so on. You know, r- really piffling marginal talk about North Sea oil revenues um, and North Sea oil restarting licences. And that's one of the issues that's going to inhibit her down the line. Clearly, inflation skewers her entire agenda because um, it strikes at all the things, that the, the, the economic problems they already have, uh, be it, as I think you, you mentioned, the uprating of benefits, um, also public sector pay deals and so on. And I think, by the way, that even though she has essentially put her faith in the war on inflation being resolved for her by a central bank she doesn't believe in, um, Actually, there comes a point where interest rates begin to be noticed by people. It may be that your electorate in the Conservative Party is overly skewed towards people who've paid off their mortgages and quite want savings, uh, a higher rate on their savings. But the fact is, there's an awful lot of people in the country who vote Conservative who actually do have a mortgage and an awful lot of businesses who are affected by interest rate rises. And so consequently, um, that is going to make people feel poorer as well. It's not just energy bills um, that are going to do that. And attached to that is that any package she comes up with also has to take into account the impact on business, and particularly small business, of these energy price rises and the state of inflation. And, and, and I think, so what does this all point to? I think the shape of what Liz Truss is looking to do at the moment, before she's got, really got in with the Treasury and really considered all the political politics of this and no longer has to talk into the Conservative electorate, is, I think, fairly clear. She's looking at targeted health for people on universal credit and probably on pension credit, which is but still chronically underclaimed, by the way. There's about a million people who don't claim the pension credit to which they're entitled. So targeted help for those people. And the rest of us, they're going to be helped through tax cuts. 
specifically um, the removal of the national insurance health levy, uh, VAT on energy bills probably, um, and who knows what else. Uh, we were talking a bit earlier about the corporation tax cuts that she's committed to. I think any logical person looking at the situation now would not commit to doing those in one go. They would stagger. As a down payment, I'm going to go halfway towards I said I'd do this year and maybe halfway next year. I'm not convinced that is what's going to happen. But I think she feels pretty strongly committed to this. So I would expect that we should believe what Liz Truss has said on her tax cuts. But there is that option for her. I think the problem comes a little down the line when, because the scale of these problems, as you so brilliantly lined out, is go far higher up the income scale than those people um, on, on, on benefits. And an awful lot of people who are minded to vote Conservative, and an awful lot of people who Conservative MPs think might be minded to vote Conservative, um, are being adversely affected by this. And even if you have an income which ought to allow you to just about manage, you know, it's your household income, your household budgets are being skewered by this, and you are going to feel significantly poorer. And I think that's the issue. The, the, the final difficult points I'd make are that the issues she faces down the line on this is that one of the reasons why all these crises, most of which are not this government's fault, are hitting Britain so hard is because the underpinnings of society have been weakened over 20 years. And so we're just, you know, Brexit aside, most of the wounds that, that are, we are feeling now are not self-inflicted, but we are less able, less good at recovering from them because of the damage we have done to the infrastructure of support in society. Some, and Boris Johnson was elected not to get Brexit done, but to get Brexit done so that we can reinvest in health and education and the police. It's very important to remember the second part of that. Get Brexit done could also be viewed as get Brexit over so that we can do the other things we wanted to do. The coalition that has kept this Conservative, got the Conservatives into power and kept them in power is not an austerity coalition. And yet Liz Truss is leading a small state, essentially austerity era manifesto. And, and she's the candidate of those people. So that's a fundamental tension at her heart. And the reason it's deeply problematic is because we already have this sense in this country, you can see that the story is beginning to percolate from the opposition, but also that people believe that things don't really work very well in Britain at the moment. You know, the health service isn't working very well. The police have essentially decriminalised anything that's not a violent crime. Um, this sense that public services do not work as they should, that we are seeing strikes begin to bubble up again. And I think that whole sense of Britain doesn't work fairly or unfairly, is a fundamental problem for a Conservative Party because that is the agenda upon which Labour oppositions win. Britain doesn't work anymore. You need someone to invest in it. it there are massive problems for Labour in this because obviously uh, where's the money for this investment? But nonetheless, that is the agenda that she's got to address. And I think I'll just end up by saying the totality of all this means one very simple thing, which is that Liz Truss, assuming it's her, is going to have to be a great Prime Minister just to be a merely good one in the current set of circumstances. It's a great line. Thank you very much, Rob. Um, that definitely doesn't count as perky, whatever you claimed at the beginning, but you know, well, definitely not for Liz Truss. The, um, sounds quite hard. Right, now, Claire, what's in the advice land showing us? So, uh, one of the things you said earlier, uh, Torsten, was about the fact that we're in the phony war stage. And I think uh, we sort of are and we aren't. Uh, I mean, I remember we sat here in December, do you remember? Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about uh, what was happening and uh, the, what was going to be happening in April with the, uh, the increase in the energy price cap then. And we were worrying about the fact that uh, the, the uprating of benefits was going to be based on a 3% inflation. And we knew that it was the actual inflation by April was going to be about 7%. Now, 
you know, those numbers, all those numbers now seem kind of impossibly small. We were very wrong. We, well, we weren't wrong. We weren't wrong, but things have got a lot worse, and everything is now, you know, everything well, is... Sort now of the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> <laughs> it's all... I've opened the books. Sorry. It's much worse than we thought. <laughs> it, but, but no, what, what we're now looking into feels like, you know, a, you know, a whole huge step change. One of the consequences of that, which I'm really, con which I'm very aware of, is that almost as soon as we got to April, um, we then started worrying about October, and rightly worrying about October because October is going to be, you know, very bad. But we have we have forgotten the things that we said were going to happen in April, and they have happened. They have come to pass. Things are already very difficult, particularly uh, for people on uh, on low income. So I mean, we're hearing this from uh, from our clients. When I talk to advisors, the same set of things keep coming through when they talk about people they're seeing. So they're talking about people coming who are already at crisis points. So rather than people coming when they can see a crisis looming, the crisis is already there. You know, people who have already run out of uh, gas and electricity, who are a day or so away from running out of food. Uh, they uh, they are consistently seeing people who even when we have done all the things that we can so you know make sure that people are claiming all the things that they can claim and, and pension credit is being claimed very heavily at the moment for very good reasons but you know you work through all the things and actually people still can't make ends meet uh, and they still need uh, food bank vouchers we're seeing people with more problems and more complex problems, um, so quite a lot of uh, threatened homelessness at the moment. Uh, we're seeing mental health issues, we're seeing uh, relationship breakdown, we're seeing domestic violence, a whole set of things which are not directly to do with people's financial position, which are, but, 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 which are also very much related to it. We're seeing people who are already in impossible situations, so uh, the, 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 one of the local citizen advice uh, talked about somebody who came in who was uh, who has a chairlift who is frightened to use the chairlift because of the amount of electricity it needs so was therefore trying to work out whether she could live in either the top floor or the lower floor of her house but the kitchen was uh, on one floor and the bathroom was on another so those sorts of choices and people who are coming in and saying even though uh, you know I've got a chronic health condition I need to keep warm uh, I'm going to sit in constant pain because I am too frightened to turn on the heating when the weather gets colder so those sorts of things and also uh, people who are coming in for the first time, um, so people who would never have expected to need help, you know, working families, people on state pensions, people consistently coming in saying, I've never needed help before, uh, but I knew, but I do, do now, uh, including people who were on, you know, incomes of maybe 40 or 50,000. If, if that's their income and they are living to their income and they don't have, you know, they've, mo most of that is taken up in costs over which they don't have a lot of short-term control, they are people are still finding themselves in problems. So we're, so we're seeing it in all the stories that are coming through and we're seeing it uh, in our data. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot at the moment is summer problems in winter. So, you know, there is a cycle to the problems that people come with and normally, uh, you know, things to do with energy costs will tend to drop down in the, in the summer. Uh, particularly for people on prepayment meters who are paying as they use energy. That's not happening. Uh, we saw very interestingly when the first tranche of the cost of living payments went out, you could discernibly see an impact in the data. So there was a, there was a drop off uh, for about two weeks um, in the number of people being referred for food banks and the food banks uh, themselves uh, said the same thing. 
but it's come back up. Uh, and so August for August, we're, we're again seeing near record levels of people uh, needing food bank vouchers. We're currently helping two people a minute uh, with access to crisis support, so food bank vouchers and charitable donations. We've seen over 13,000 people already this year who couldn't top up their prepayment meters. Um, and we know that between a quarter and a half uh, of all households just won't be able to uh, pay their energy bills when they go up in October. So this is a this is a real crisis happening now, as well as something which is going to get uh, so much worse. And it's quite you know it's, I think it's difficult for all of us to hold both those things in our heads, but they are both true. And I think so. I think what we're seeing you know fully bears out uh, all the things in uh, Lisa's <coughs> report about likely uh, likely increase in. Uh, in destitution because people just do not have places to go. People on lower incomes uh, don't, do not have the capacity to absorb what's happening at the moment, let alone what's coming uh, in October. So the sort of things we're saying, uh, I mean, you know, we know that more people are going to find themselves in debt. Uh, you know, inevitably, uh, energy debt is going to run up. So there is a set of things which are really important to make sure that people who do uh, have energy debt don't experience the worst consequences. So we are we are calling on Ofgem to ban forced moves to prepayment meters over the winter because if you run up even quite a small amount of debt, a hundred pounds, it feels you know a, a drop in the ocean of current energy bills. You can be um, uh, required to move on to a prepayment meter. We know that people who are on prepayment meters are, are both paying more for electricity and gas, but are also much more likely to to run out and then have no. Uh, no heating, no uh, no electricity. So we're, we're saying don't do that over the winter. Uh, making sure that the inappropriate debt collection is not being uh, visited on people who simply have no uh, prospect of paying. And uh, it's going to be really important for Ofgem to enforce the existing license conditions which require energy suppliers to treat their customers properly to provide uh, to provide support. And then there's the question of, of you know, what kind of support package that the government is going to need to come up with. And we're talking about that at the moment in terms of some, some key principles. Um, you know, what, what the precise package looks like will depend on all sorts of you know, uh, financial and political calculations uh, going on in, the, uh, in whoever the new Prime Minister turns out to be's camp. Um, but in terms of principles, the first one is targeting support on the people who need it most. Um, uh, you know, we know that this is not going to be an equal crisis. It's it's very clear in all of the uh, in all of the numbers. We know that uh, the impact on people on low incomes is going to be is going to be huge. One thing we think is really important is bringing forward uh, the point at which the uh, the benefits up rating takes effect. Uh, you know, we are still stuck in this. Uh, antediluvian system where uh, the benefits operating is set on the basis of October, it takes until April um, to pay it. Uh, you know, the government needs to find a way to bring that forward because in a period of high inflation that is, that is cutting deeply into people's uh, income and their capacity uh, just, to, uh, just to survive. Um, uh, there will probably be a need for you know, more payments, uh, for you know, more and higher payments for people um, on benefit. At the moment, the, the payment for people with disability who often do have very identifiable, addition, identifiable additional costs is half the, pension, the amount that's being given to pensioners. Uh, that needs to be uh, higher. But particularly, uh, we are going to need a solution for people who are outside um, the, 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 the benefit boundary. Uh, but then from a practical point of view, it's very easy for the government to identify and pay money to, and relatively easy to pay money to, uh, people who are on benefits because, you know, 
the government has all of their bank details. It's at a practical level. Uh, it's quite straightforward. It's much more difficult for people who are not on benefits. But we know that some of the most acute problems are going to be experienced by people who are outside uh, that benefit boundary, who are not benefiting from the uh, the, the 650 that's all uh, that's already been paying. We we need to make sure there is a way of finding uh, of, of making sure that support gets to those people. But it is practically uh, very difficult. Other conditions out there that the support needs to be of a scale. Uh, it needs to match the scale of the problem. Um, you know, we are talking uh, about millions of people uh, who are going to need help who just do not have the capacity to absorb uh, these increases. Even, you know, even just thinking about October before we look at those absolutely eye-watering numbers uh, now being projected for uh, for, the, for the spring. And the other thing is about simplicity. Um, whatever, <coughs> whatever. Uh, the government comes up with it's got to be something that can be implemented quickly um, because uh, already I mean, people will be seeing their direct debits go up, up from now. Direct debits can go up ahead of the actual increase in the energy price cap. Once it's set, people will start to see those uh, increases uh, coming in. And so you know, there, are, there, are, there are lots of solutions that could be put in place, but anything that is too complex, which means that it can't be delivered in time, uh, is just not going to um, meet people's needs uh, at the moment when they are in the greatest crisis. Great. Thank you, Claire. Those important, if grim. Uh, um, the, um, uh, right, there's loads of really great questions uh, online. Just a reminder, it's Slido, hashtag living standards, and this is how your hand goes up if you're in the room. The, um, there's some mics hiding at the back. So we've got, there's a lot here, okay? So let's try, let's focus on the energy side of things. First of all, we should talk a bit about the problem, a bit about the range of solutions where you've talked about some principles and you talked about what you expect the package to be, and we obviously have proposals uh, in the paper um, this morning. Then let's talk a bit about the politics of what actually happens when those things start missing each other slightly, those principles and like what actually happens inevitably not perfectly uh, matching up. We should talk about what could go well, what's the like upside risks in some areas, which there are um, some of, and then we'll, we'll go to wherever the questions uh, take us as well as these longer term uh, challenges that we are um, setting out. So first of all, so on the problem, I think it's worth, so, Claire, you basically gave us this to us, but just to like, make sure we're really clear. So there's two different, like, specific, there's, well, there's, not, there's two or three ways this can play out for different, and it's different for different kind of households. And obviously, everybody's poorer, right, to a degree. So we're parking that. That's the big picture. The country as a whole is poorer. Most households, therefore, will be poorer. Um, that's the big picture to all of the economics and the politics. But within that, we've got an acute issue on prepayment meters, where if we do nothing else, we're just shutting off lots of people's electricity and gas this winter. Like... People don't have £700 to pay for that in January. They will be shut off if we don't do anything else. And, th and that is 3 million households? 4 million, four million households, okay, include, including 30% of the poorest households. So we're talking about a lot of um, uh, people. We don't want people sh shutting off their energy over the winter. People will die. Like, that's what happens when we have no heating in people's homes in uh, winter. For people who are on direct debits or bill payments um, in arrears systems, we're just going to end up with lots and lots of arrears. And the feed through of that is, so you gave us one, which is people put on to prepayment meters, which the companies can make some choices about, but that's historically what we've done. Their credit rating will get trashed if we don't do anything else. The companies will be in trouble because they are not used to bad debts on that level. And obviously, we've all watched what happens when energy suppliers go under over the course of the last year, which is the taxpayer via the bill, bill payer is picking up the cost. So the, um, uh, 
is that our, what else should we be thinking about in our, what's the actual like lived experience of this in this winter? Are those that are those that are is that how we is that how it manifests for people or are there things we're missing? Uh, I think I mean I think a lot of that is how it how it manifests. I mean obviously there's a there's a flow through uh, to you know to all of the other things that people are, are needing to pay for. So I mean no, I mean we have all been talking for I know probably a year now about people facing choices between eating and heating, um, and now clearly people are facing choices about both. But you know the more of your uh, more of your income that is being swallowed up by energy uh, the less that you have able for eating and we know I mean if you know talk to talk to food banks or talk to our local citizens advice I mean people are people who are turning up at, at food banks um, you know I think uh, once with food banks and a third of the people coming to them have not eaten for more than a day so there, there is a there is a huge issue and it's, it, you know we are building a huge health issue um, you know, living in cold cold damp unheated houses is bad for your health not eating properly is bad for your health you know worrying um, about how you're going to cope is bad for your health so there's a, there's a whole set of things where we are you know we are storing up um, long-term issues we definitely are now we focus mainly on the the like what does the new prime minister think how do they think through the household part of this obviously in the real world rising energy bills does hit households directly but it hits firms directly in their costs and it hits public services because mm -hmm. presumably we think hospitals should keep the heating on this winter, I hope. The, um, uh, and schools, which many of whom, including the school that I'm a governor at, is already in financial trouble before they were asked to cough up for large um, energy bills. So how do you, do you think is the balance between those issues? There is a question here actually on, here you go, I'll bring it up on the screen. Hopefully people can see it behind us. The, um, without going into the... Um, the I'll read it out while we wait for it. But it's, many companies are feeling the burden of inflation as acutely as their employees. Whether or not it's as acutely, but anyway, acutely. Anyway, limiting their ability to offer pay rises as high as they would like to. That's a fair description of what is going on. The pay rises look like they're settling around 5% this year. Inflation is going to top double that. So we're sharing the burden, basically, between profits and between um, employees. How, how do you think, do you think the Prime Minister is going to try to bite off the households, the business and the public services in September or come back for bits of those? So, I mean, it's really, it, it goes to how expansive she feels minded to be. Um, households, I think we can be reasonably sure. I mean, um, that there will be, I mean, uh, interesting, the, the idea about just stopping companies from moving to prepayment meters is such an attractive option for a government. You can't do this. Very, very appealing idea. So I think that kind of thing is crucial. Um, one of the issues for Conservatives, you know, obviously the Conservatives are not the party of the poor and they've done very well by not being the party of the poor for a very long time. But there comes a point at which the plight of the poor percolates through to the people who do vote Conservative or might vote Conservative, either because what they're going through is just a more extreme form of their own lived experience, as in we're struggling with our energy bills, or just because it's on the television every day, day after day of awfulness and no government can resist those kind of things. So I think the household approach, we can see how that's going to go. I think she is clearly going to try and strike it. We're talking about very substantial amounts of money, which we don't have. So um, there's, and there's clearly going to be an attempt to strike a balance, a, a bit like Rishi Sunak did, um, how far up the income scale he chooses to go. And I think he over-indexed slightly with his council tax measure um, because they're looking at conservative voters too. And that's the, issue, that's the one thing that she has to worry about in terms of pure politics. It's okay, you help the poor, but what about me? I'm, you know, to use a phrase that we used to use, just about managing. Um, and why aren't you helping me? So she has to 
think about those issues, which is why um, the pure political simplicity of Keir Starmer's absurdly expensive plan to just cap bills for everybody, uh, which might work if it was a plan for one quarter or two, but this isn't, um, is going to be a constant millstone for her because there's this simple answer on offer from the opposition. And it's quite hard to explain why you're not going to do it. Let's come back to his his cunning plan. With businesses, I think you're absolutely right. And I think they are going to have to look at small businesses in particular. Um, Because obviously, the corporation tax cuts, which she liked, well, first of all, you have to be in a profit before it's of any relevance to you. And no one's going to be making a lot of profit. You have to be making money before that's that's directly right. You have to be over a certain... So, you know, the the, the corporation tax cuts are not going to help the majority of businesses in in this country. So... She's definitely interested in business rates relief, which is something, again, that she wanted to do. So this is a lever into that. So you can see something there. Um, beyond that, I don't know exactly what she's planning. She's not going to cap energy bills for businesses. I don't see that happening. That. Um, and so that's a real problem for her in terms of ad- addressing those issues. There was a third one. You said household businesses and... Public services. Public services. Who's, well, who's I mean, paying for the energy bills to keep the school... Well, I can't remember. It might even have been you, but I did see somebody... Um, uh, on, on, here's someone on the radio that talking about being a school governor and just saying to his, uh, to, his, to his staff, well, look, just don't pay the energy bills. Are they going to cut off a school? Uh, and you can just imagine schools and hospitals just saying, well, look, what are they going to do? They're really going to shut down the energy in our hospital? They're really going to close off the energy for our school. So the government is going to have to find a way through this one. And, you know, its, it's traditional positions, has, whenever, when we look at other problems, has been to say, look, of course you can do more, of course you can pay your staff more from existing budgets. Well, that's not okay. going to hold. So that's something, and, and that's the, the, the part that I don't think they've addressed at all yeah. in looking at this so far, is the impact on public services, and it's substantial. It definitely, uh, it definitely is, and I agree. He's been totally absent all summer, basically. In fact, I'll come back later. There's been more chat about where are these imaginary savings going to come from from my cunning plan to shrink the state, and rather not from the how are we going to pay the energy bills this winter. But anyway, the, um, for understandable reasons, right? Um, Luther, why don't you take this one, yeah. which is basically uh, how I'll read out: How long or short term can we expect prices and bills to keep rising? That's a very unfair question, but you know, the report gets into the big uncertainty. And this is material to which policy you can choose. Mm. The, um, uh, is this just something we have to ride out? Says, uh, you know, says the grin and bear it anonymous question maker here. What do you reckon? Yeah, so it's definitely important to emphasise first that this is all very uncertain. I mean, inflation projections are sort of changing. When the Bank of England do their projections every three months, they just seem to get higher and higher and higher, which doesn't look great. But at the moment their current projection shows inflation peaking in the fourth quarter of this year at 13% and then sort of slowly coming down and we would expect inflation to have come down to 2%. So that's the target by, I think it's about 2024, 2025. But as I said, everything's quite uncertain at the moment and you know the next forecast could well look very different. Yeah. I do think, well, it's important to remember every, all of our assumptions about how we can borrow our way through this crisis are predicated on a worldview of Britain, Britain's economy and the yes. currency, which you know is more precarious than it used to be. And I don't want to go into hyperbole of how far Britain, something like that. But is credit is not infinite. It's not always the case. The Mark Carney argument. Well, but I think he's right, isn't he? I mean, you can't assume forever that people look at the British economy and go, that's all right. They're British. They can borrow. It doesn't necessarily follow, and I think that, and when it when that goes, it goes very fast. 
That, I, that last bit is definitely true. When countries lose uh, the developed country privilege, they lose it all at once, and you do not want that to be um, uh, to come back to that. I think one thing that would, uh, as, a, as a thing to reinforce what we're saying here on the uncertainty, anyone that was looking at wholesale markets in Europe on gas over the last 48 hours will have gone through a cycle of saying, ah, oh, it's good news. Turns out the Germans were able to top up their storage. That's partly because German industry has been able to um, stop using gas but keep production going better than we thought. Right. So it's not because loads more gas has come in, it's because the usage of it. And so everyone was got very excited. Big falls in wholesale gas prices. And then 24 hours later, big surges in wholesale gas prices because people said, actually, we're just shutting down loads of German industry, hello recession. Uh, and, the, and the Russia's um, turned off a gas pipeline for maintenance. And I think we all know what maintenance means. And it's going to mean probably several times over the course of this uh, conflict. So we've got to be really careful not to over-index daily movements in wholesale gas prices. The big picture, what have we big picture learnt? If any, any progress we make in securing gas supplies into Europe from elsewhere, Putin is then just dialing down his supplies to match what we got from elsewhere. So that should make us think it's not going away in the short term because something nice happens, even though we have, I think, generally I think corporate world is doing better than lots of us could have reasonably expected in cutting gas usage without absolutely hammering uh, production. But we're still going to be in recession, so it's not going to be enough to stop that um, happening. Right, let's go on to um, uh, ways of coming at the solution. And let's use your suggestion as a kicking off point, which is basically she needs to go big, uh, low expectations helps you. Uh, the package you're outlining, which is broadly... Uh, targeted help for those on uh, benefits plus uh, top heavy middle a bit help that comes from tax cuts basically and you hope the overlap between the two gets you enough of the population um, uh, and that to be and to be blunt that basically is kind of the Rishi plan like it depends what he actually eventually did it's basically a version of the Rishi plan it's just more top heavy on the tax cuts uh, than he's done and she doesn't want to do the lump sum payment she wants other help for people on benefits I I think she's going to go bigger. I think your expectation, I think she's going to go bigger and commier. Yes, so do I. Uh, than that, because basically, communister, I mean, rather than it's not following. Uh, because the, the amount of the middle you miss from a strategy, which is uh, benefits plus a national insurance cut, is basically all of the middle. You miss all of the middle, and the middle cut won't take a £6,000 energy bill pro rata by... Um, by the winter without very so and then you've got to follow through the logic of that which is if that is your problem what do you do which takes you on the simplicity takes you to the Keir Starmer solution so I think there's got to be a non-negligible chance it's definitely renamed it definitely isn't what Keir Starmer's called for but that we are capital energy bills and that we're doing it in a matter of months I think that's much higher chance than it was in July and they're definitely looking at that if you do that, the challenge is, how long can you do that for, as the French have found out? So that is exactly, like, we've gone for giving people money, the French have gone for capping bills, uh, basically, and then as the crisis has gone on, they've been like, okay, we're still capping bills, but we're capping higher levels, because basically there's only so much pain they can take via EDF's balance sheet. They, um, that's the world we would be well, in. Well, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I, I can't remember if it was part of the Starman plan, I don't think it was, but that they've looked at is the notion that you do cap this, but that you expect the energy firms to pay you back yeah. over a long period of time. Yeah. You could possibly even securitise it. Um, you know, over 10, 20 years, they repay you, yeah. perhaps. Um, 
And I do think they're going to have to look at this. And I do think the politics of this, for the reasons I outlined at the very beginning, are that she needs to go bigger. But it is something they find difficult. And I mean, in a way, it's sort of refreshing that you have, gov you have political parties who have beliefs and stick to them. Um, it's not a completely ridiculous outlook in, on the world, but I think on this occasion she's going to have to elide those reasons. I mean, yeah. there is, by the way, a, a, a small but delicious irony in all of this, which is any package that has any chance of working has got to be entirely organised by the Treasury, which, of course, she thinks is a catastrophe and whose orthodoxy is the major problem facing British society. So there is a... You know, the Treasury have an opportunity here as well, get actually. all the poor Treasury civil servants. Self-esteem's already down. Let's not go with I think there is a fantastic opportunity for the Treasury to rescue Liz Truss's premiership. OK, not even. okay that's a good it's, I mean, it's, it's also just worth, worth bearing in mind. I mean, the, I mean, even the Keir Starmer plan in its in full fig, uh, that's talking about capping prices where they currently are. And when I go back to my, you know, we, this may be the phony wall, but it's a very real wall for a lot of people. Um, I don't think that... Uh, even if you went for the you know the maximalist version and capped everything at the current level of the price cap, you would still need further help for people on the lowest incomes yeah. because we know that they you know that that increase that's already happened is not is not sustainable. So, yeah. in in some ways, I mean it, it's a, it's it, I, I can see why an incoming prime minister would be looking at something like that, and you can obviously you know dial up and down the the, the, the level you do it here, but it's probably not something which you can then say that helps everybody um, enough not to need additional things for the people on, on the lowest incomes. Because, again, we've just, you know, we, we have, it is kind of boiling a frog territory. Um, we have all, we all now think that £1,971 uh, as the energy price gap is, you know, that's okay and we can all live with that. And many people can, but there is a significant population yeah, of people beyond, and, and it's beyond people who are, uh, actually, on benefits, who for whom that is unmanageable. Yeah, and even if, I mean, even if the price doesn't go up, right? The unit cost of the energy, mm. our usage of energy is about to go up. So the pain yes. is still going up this winter, whether or not the price rises, because we use uh, we use half our gas just in January, March, yep. February, March alone. So that is when, for obvious reasons, yep. temperatures go down and use goes up. The um, uh, let, but let's dig into that because I think it's one thing I was wrestling with over the course of. July and into August. It's always good to like be self-critical on like where has the uh, where's the world changed and the nature of the problem changed and does that force you to rethink what you thought about? So my general view of this crisis has been uh, at the point we got up to two thousand pounds bills. Um, uh, a bit of universal support's fine. Broadly, we can and we can deal with uh, most of the rest of the problem by providing income support to those. Uh, who are most in need to universal credit, which is what we, you know, we eventually persuaded Richard Sunak on the third time of asking to focus his support back in May. When the problem is now moving to like double double that level in terms of energy bills, £4,000, the limitations of that approach become more acute, basically, which is, you know, four in ten of those in the entire bottom half of the income distribution aren't on benefits. And once we're saying £4,000 energy bills, and we can't put all our support just to. So that is. Have you changed your mind at all on like what's the right approach as we've got as the problem has got bigger? Um, so I think. I mean, it's, it, it is as you say. It's, it's a really it's a really difficult balance, and and this is partly why we're trying to cover it from from the point of view of principles. I mean, there, yeah. there clearly needs to be support at scale because, as you say, there are millions of people who are not on benefits um, who are you know are going to be. Uh, squeezed beyond the point where, where it's actually uh, yep. remotely manageable, um, and so so there needs to be support on a on a broad uh, so 
the, the, the scale of the support needs to match the scale of the crisis. Yeah. I think where we constantly come back to uh, is, but never forget that in, in whatever whatever solution uh, is is you know posited for people generally, if it's if it's both sufficient, if it's affordable um, and it's helping everybody, then there is always going to need to be more for people on the lowest income. That so I think it's a, it's a uh, it's a it's a both and, and I think you know, because of the nature of uh, of politics, it will probably be the, the universal bit which will be very front of mind for an incoming Prime Minister. Um, and so we will always keep emphasising the need for the targeted support for people on low incomes because they can be forgotten in uh, broader dis debate. That's true. Well, the, 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 but it's actually the middle that's hardest to target policy it's the, it's, uh, And it's the poor, but yes. it's the single pe person who's not on benefits. Like, you know, is, it, and could be very low income and is about to get absolutely. I, because basically with a policy challenge, like you're in the Treasury trying to save your reputation with the new Prime Minister, right? The problem is that this is really hard. Yeah. Like there is not a good policy answer left to us. So we're left wrestling with like, what's the least bad policy answer given that we haven't got that many levers that exist uh, and the problem is enormous. So I, uh, yeah, I've, my, my self-critical view would be we haven't wrestled in which, which goes to the fundamental question of the, the issue of universal solutions. Which you, go, which, which, which you go to when you haven't got a nice and neat Yes, but they, you know, they're also expensive, wasteful at the top end. Yeah. And, you know, when you have no money, that also limits your capacity to, to help right. those well, let's needs. So let's go to, uh, I'm, but you've asked loads of brilliant questions, which I'm obviously like failing miserably to do uh, justice to. So let's do windfall taxes then, right? On So where does the money come from? If you, if you choose to do something really expensive because you think I've got to go further up the income distribution that I would normally do, then normally the Treasury would say that's fine, but given that we don't know how long this is going to go on for and how big the problem's going to get, can we at least claw some money back from somewhere to stop the bill? Um, and the two places you basically have got to go to, to are tax and windfalls, tax the top. Those are basically the two things. Yeah. You can't tax the middle and the bottom, obviously, given what's about to happen. So you've basically got two options. We're probably not going to do the solidarity tax option, even though Churchill would have done that. So we're basically in the what, are we, what more do we do on windfalls? Quasi said he doesn't generally like windfall taxes. But we're going to be doing more, aren't we? Well, I think so. I mean, I thought, you know, after the last time, you know, when we didn't have a windfall tax, we had a sort of schmindfall tax. Yeah, what was, um, it, what was it called in the end? It, I can't even remember. Did it did have what a different called? name. The energy profits level, you yes. get a prize. Well done. Um, it's definitely a windfall tax, people. You know, <laughs> with, 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 with this sort of fig leaf of you don't have to pay it if you invest uh, in Oh, that's Wall right, Street. yes. Um, they clearly looked very seriously at taxing the electricity. Uh, producers as well, so I think that's probably a fairly good bet, particularly until you can reform uh, the structure of electricity pricing, which takes time, yeah. which takes a lot of time. So I think you could probably come up with a political fig leaf that says what we're actually going to do is sort out electricity pricing, but until we can, we're going to have your money. Um, I think that it seems both economically and politically unsustainable to resist extending the windfall tax because it's so hard to talk to the public. Yeah. Um, on this one. And I, so, so my feeling is, yes, we will see something. Um, it will be extended in some way, possibly with the fig leaf off till we're able to reform the market. Yeah. So, should we just unpack that so people that are not spent as much time on the... So uh, there's the obvious bit of the windfall taxes, which is basically companies that are UK-based that are making hydrocarbon-based windfalls, which is basically BP and Shell. Like, there's some other stuff, but it's basically BP and Shell, uh, where... Labour is calling on them to extend the in time, go backwards in time a bit to the windfall tax. So that seems perfectly plausible, and probably we end we could end up with an extension in terms of the mm. actual level of a tax at some point. 
that's the easy bit because we know how to design it in some senses. We have a North Sea oil regime and all the rest, um, taxation regime. The hard bit, which is the bit you're getting at, which is what do you do about energy generation, electricity generation, where providers, even if they never touch any hydrocarbons, are making big windfalls because they sell electricity, which is being priced at the marginal price of lime and gas, right? Even though their costs haven't gone up, they're receiving that. I mean, this price. is a genuine windfall. If it's you total think, windfall. If, if you think about windfalls as an economic term, that's one. Yeah. So it's, it's totally. So the economics of this is really simple. Broadly, you should be taxing this stuff. It's a little bit hard to do. What's interesting on the politics is that Labour hasn't called for these things to be taxed yet. Has it, I thought Labour had called for further windfall taxes. Not on. Not on. Because basically, most of this is renewable generation, mm. and most and they're a bit nervous about like. Wind farms are, there's like good versus evil, and wind farms and solar panels are good, and the gas is evil, and the windfall tax, even though the windfall exists in the good land, they're like, oh, it's a bit complicated. But I mean, we should definitely be taxing the windfalls. Like these, are, like, these are investors, they're often the same investors who are, why on earth are we not? It's not all renewable generation. People on long-term contracts aren't making windfalls, uh, but people who are selling into spot markets for electricity today are making enormous windfalls. If that's your wind farm, well done, all of you. <laughs> Citizens Advice, pro windfall taxing this lot? So I think, I, I mean, we are, we are broadly uh, staying out of the where does the money come from side of it. Uh, that's very bold are, of you, Claire. What we are, what we are <laughs> focused on. Uh, I, I, I think, but I think the critical thing is uh, that, that so, you know, some of the solutions being talked about essentially kind of pile back the cost onto consumers uh, in a different time frame, uh, you know, as the original... The original so it's the Scottish Power then, suggestion? Uh, well, yes, or, or any of these. I mean, it's a you know, very I mean, silly any, suggestion, anything anyone that's that involves, writing notes for the new government. Anything that involves you know, energy companies paying back money over time, you know, energy companies are not going to pay back that money other it than by putting on, is it onto consumer bills. So, so we are given you know, how... How long this is going to go on for us? We've been talking about how deep it's going to be, how problematic it's going to be for people coming out of it. Um, we are saying let's let's stay away from things which just pile up bills and then give them back to customers at a later date. Yeah, it's also just a more expensive way of doing it because the companies are calling for the government to guarantee their debt to make this happen, but their their borrowing costs are higher than the government's borrowing costs. So the only benefit of doing it is it's off the books, yeah. mm. which is not. But it's that's not, nothing. not nothing. It's not nothing, but you know, it's like PFI without a hospital. You don't get hospital at the end of it. I mean, like the, it's not nothing, no. It's not nothing, but it's still silly. The, um, uh, and good for some bankers who'll make some money uh, in the process. Right, there's a few really popular questions which I'll make sure we do take. So, Claire, this is probably m most suitable for uh, you. What innovative policy options are available to local authorities? We've talked about the national policy response broadly here, but to tackle the energy and cost of living crisis which are not about just managing its symptoms. That's, a really, that's basically an impossible question because I don't think local authorities can manage the uh, underlying structural problem because they've got any money anyway themselves. But what, when you're talking to local authorities, what are you telling them to do? Uh, that's, that, that, that's a very good question. And I, I mean, I, they, don't have, uh, they don't have many of the levers. I mean, obviously what they are doing is, is dealing much more directly with, um, with communities, uh, so I know there are I know there are there are schemes in some places, particularly around things like um, you know housing and homelessness uh, and you know, the ability to kind of write off relatively small amounts of uh, debt in order for people to uh, you know make sure yeah. that they're keeping their they're keeping their housing. So I think on that on that I think what what local authorities can do is really really kind of understand uh, what matters to their local communities. Um, and they're also obviously they're working with the other bits of uh, the the, you know, the the system. So those those interconnections between uh, you know, local authority responsibilities, NHS responsibilities, uh, and they they are generally you know, very plugged into 
uh, what's happening. They don't. I mean, I don't think they have. I don't think they have big. Uh, they don't have the big levers. Um, I was looking at some work because you guys did this really good, t like updating on what people, what problems people are coming into. And if you look at similar stuff from people doing more like pure debt advice work, if you look at the last ten years, the growth is down on some consumer credit, but up on basically utility bills, which we're about to get loads of, but also council tax. So they can, like, councils thinking really hard about council tax arrears and how they're managing them would be worth it, wouldn't it, Lisbon? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, council tax, council tax arrears until energy debt came along was the biggest thing. Uh, it was the, 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 the largest thing. And, I mean, they, and that, some of that is structural in the way that council tax arrears work. So if you miss a single council tax payment, you suddenly find yourself immediately liable for the whole of the year's uh, council tax. So people, yeah. people tip into, you know, large, uh, large... Debt, which has uh, lots of consequences, uh, you know, and, and the way in which the way in which people are treated when they uh, when they when they if they miss a payment, what's what's happening, and, and you know, obviously, councils councils are also responsible for um, you know, benefits uh, and you know in in that housing yep. space, uh, and I think like everything, I mean, just just kind of keeping the doors open is quite important. We know, we know that during the pandemic, a lot of uh, a lot of councils could have closed their physical doors. In some cases, also closed, effectively closed their virtual doors, and um, just making sure that you know, that support is there for people. Right. Right. Let's move on to some of the bigger picture politics for a second. So, there's, uh, there's two questions here which overlap, and you guys can pick up on. Okay. So, um, uh, first one, which is here we go. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, you'll have seen there's a lot of campaigns out there in social media which are basically stop paying, right? Don't pay your bill. Okay. The, um, now. Whether or not those are social media is not the country, as hopefully everyone has noticed by now. But the, um, are we going to see a kind of fuel bill strike of some form? The, a related question um, is here, which is okay, whether or not people don't pay, are we going to get civil unrest, basically? How has Britain changed fundamentally, or will people be on the streets being like, this is not okay? I mean, it's quite hard because obviously we, haven't, we don't know what the big announcement is, and there's going to be a big announcement, so that's rather material to the question. But. Well, riots or not? About riots, I think we'll see protests, assuming that the, the package that the government comes up with isn't good enough. Um, obviously, the don't pay your bills thing legitimises that position. The more you can spread that idea, that it's a legitimate thing to do. Um, there are the possibility, there's the possibility of, of, of it rising. Uh, one thing to come back to something Claire mentioned earlier. I mean, the notion of don't put anybody on prepayment meters. Well, that's a problem if you don't want people to go on a fuel strike. Because if you've got the threat of, well, you can do that if you like, but we'll put you on a prepayment meter, mm. then that may be something you think twice about. Um, and it may be that actually a lot of the people who, the people who do withhold are not necessarily those who are most desperate but are as a political action, but are those who possibly can just about afford it but don't want to yeah. be clobbered with this and think there is an opportunity to say, well, hang on, why should we? So, I mean... Will it grow? The honest answer, of course, is I don't know. You never know how these things can s snowball. I think, were we getting to the point where you had something equivalent to the poll tax campaigns and the poll tax riots, I think it would force the government to, to rethink. So I think it's useful to sort of focus the government's mind. I'm not yet seeing a major movement, but as you say, we're going to have to see where things play out in the next few, few weeks. What do you think? It's obviously risky for individuals, which we should remind them. This is not financial advice, people, but... Yeah, I think, you know, sort of campaign or not, there are just going to be a load of people this winter who won't be able to pay their energy bills, so we'll stop paying. 
because they won't be able to, you know, whether that's by choice or not. So it almost doesn't matter if the government doesn't do anything, you know, if they don't bring the price down or provide enough support to households or something like that, people won't be able to pay their energy bills and they, they just won't pay them because they can't. Yeah, can't, can't pay is the, like, thing that's definitely going to happen. Mm. And then won't pay is, like, who knows, but people should, as I say, People should be careful. You will end up with a it will damage your credit rating. Not talking to yes, and, and and the advice that we're giving to people is contact your energy supplier because you know it. it you know, we know that people are really struggling and you know reaching the point where it feels like there is no option. Um, but actually, um, energy suppliers are under an obligation. There are rules. They uh, they are required to support uh, people and to come up with you know a plan that reflects what you're able to pay. So we're saying to people get in touch with um, energy suppliers. Um, because, as, as you were saying, you know, if you if you if you run up debt, then there are consequences of that in terms of uh, of credit ratings. So that's not a position that uh, people want to be in. But as I say, just from the point of view of you know looking at the looking at the the, 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 the sums, um, you know, a seven hundred pound uh, energy bill. You know, when we're in a world where uh, universal credit for a single person over twenty five is three hundred thirty four pounds ninety one a month. Um, and you know, just when you just look at some of those numbers, I mean, we know that there is going to be a problem. Um, but we are very much encouraging people to contact energy suppliers. Um, let's take on another different version of this, which is a little bit philosophical, but does actually matter. So this question from uh, Tim here, which is, when we're talking about support and how, um, should we focus on measures that reduce inflation, so the price of energy, okay, or measures uh, that are raising incomes, okay? And different countries are choosing different mixes of this, okay? And it's having quite a big effect on people. When people are just looking at the inflation rate and how it differs between European countries, forget America because they're in a different case, but, but across um, European countries, you've got quite different inflation rates being measured. But a lot of those differences are driven by whether the country has chosen to reduce prices to support households or has chosen to increase incomes for households. And even if they've done exactly the same amount, they have different effects on the inflation rate because the income support has no effect on inflation and the measured inflation, right? And I think that is quite, there's a, like, there are reasons why your limited policy levers might push you to one of these different options, reduce prices, increase incomes. The economics textbooks say increase the incomes but don't stop the price rises happen. That generally makes sense. I think we're probably now in a situation where the price rises are so large that it no longer makes any sense. But the, but it is a reasonable position to um, uh, to hold. In general, you guys have been on the income support side of the argument. Well, I think there's 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 a bit of it both ends. So there's there's a, I mean, one of the things we should be doing, which is a slightly longer term issue, is really kind of leaning into energy efficiency. So it's is is it is it about reducing? There's reducing. The, the unit price. There's reducing yep. the amount that we use, and there's supporting people's income. And we would, I think, we would say, uh, we absolutely need to th focus on how to, how can we reduce uh, usage. Uh, it, but that is not a, you know, that is not going to solve people's problems, you know, now or in October or uh, next uh, next uh, January. So I, I think again, I mean, what what we are what we are focused on is. Is, is how much people are having to pay. So yeah. actually, I mean, it, it, it may be a slightly kind of more economic technical argument between whether that, that turns up in the form of yeah. income or yeah. prices. I think I saw today that the ONS have decided that 
Um, Yesterday they decided they're not going to they're going to classify. They're going to classify it as income, and therefore yeah. it doesn't have an impact on inflation. So there's obviously there's kind of quite technical arguments over there, which that, I'll leave others to deal there with. There are some technical arguments um, uh, over over there in general going on. Yeah, the, um, but it's, it's quite material. It, that four hundred pounds is like too, like it's a lot. It's a lot of percent. So the um, these things will matter. They'll matter for like. It might matter for interest rates, might, and they might matter, but they definitely will matter for government debt interest costs on index linked gilts, for example. So this is real money, like billions of pounds. And also everything the government, you know, and also every piece of benefit uprating, every public sector pay yeah. deal, all of the other things that you, I mean, the headline price of rate of inflation is relevant. It is. It is. Whether <laughs> so, or not it doesn't Although I, I, I saw someone saying that yesterday. I think, we, I think the reason this is hard is because the long term path of benefits doesn't get matter. When what matters is the long-term price level, right? Which mm. it's going to keep touch with. So it does really matter to get to to know what whether the short-term changes in inflation matter for long-term benefits. They definitely matter for the operating issue. Well, so it's material. One, one of the issues we haven't touched on, which I remember from the pandemic, uh, was the extent to which and we're talking about this, Rishi Sunak was fixated on the difficulty of taking back the twenty pounds. Very, very obsessed with it. And it's a really important point now because obviously. There were some very good moral reasons why that £20 should not be taken back, which is that you know the support was too low in the first place. But if you look at it from the point of view of government action, if you cannot introduce a crisis measure and end it when the crisis is over, you have far less incentive to do the same next time around. And so I think that's a really central issue for whoever is in the Treasury is that whatever we do to get us through this crisis, we do have to be able to end it. Yep. We can't be in a situation in two years' time when we're through the worst of this fuel crisis and everyone's saying, oh, no, you can't cut universal credit back, the energy support and universal credit back because you yep. know, people still need the money. So that's a piece of expectation that, that yep. really affects the way the Treasury plans. Right. Although the flip side of that is, of course, that I mean, you, one could reasonably take the evidence that I mean, we've had a lot of shocks and crises over the last few years. Every time the government has needed to make a crisis intervention because the underlying welfare system is not in a in a situation where it does support people adequately. So I think there, I mean there is a there is a kind of <clears throat> there is a moral argument that says that, you know, the, these are all signals um, that the system is sending that says. Uh, this is not a level that, that is... I completely agree on the moral point. I'm just talking about in terms of the, the management of crisis measures. Yeah. If you feel you can never retreat from them, that affects what you're prepared to do. That, and that's definitely what a large chunks of the Conservative Party think. That's the lesson they have drawn from that thing. So, yeah, obviously, I, I agree with you. Like, the underlying lesson is if you leave people in poverty, then when a crisis comes along, you have to do something else, right? But the, um, that may not be the lesson that everyone has drawn, unbelievably, despite us showing them charts. Turns out it might not convince everyone, which is quite upsetting for those of us that produce a lot of charts. Right. Now, public services. So uh, quite a lot of this um, uh, discussion over the summer has basically been premised on we don't need to do anything else on public spending. In fact, if anything, public spending has got too high. The state's too big. We can't have a tax burden that's the highest since the 1970s or earlier, actually, now. The, um, uh, so the state needs to shrink. Most of that involves Jacob Rees-Mogg today saying he's going to sell off a few buildings uh, and asking the civil servants to turn up. To the office, but the um, but there's a general like there is in a way that definitely was not true under Boris Johnson, who is a social liberal but isn't an economic liberal in any meaningful sense. The economic liberalism of we need to shrink the state a bit is back in the Conservative Party, in private at least, in like or in, in, internally at least. Um, it's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Like, what, what are we? Which bit? Go back well, to your. If, go if back to your. It yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. Michael Gove actually his column he did when he said he was endorsing, which he said had the like, bit a bit about 
you can't get a passport, you can't get a driving license, it might be a good idea if public services worked a bit, basically. Yeah. I mean, look, I, part of this depends on, on your world outlook, and if you have a social, social democratic or left outlook, yeah. then, uh, of course, you, you think this is a major problem. It's very interesting, I, I don't know if any of you saw David Frost's pamphlet for policy exchange a couple of weeks ago. I, I, so recommend this, by the way, if you haven't read it, for all kinds for of fun reasons. or education. Both. Um, you know, there is a bit where he starts off, you know, citing Orwell, as you know, there comes a point where things. Are, I, I'm going to get this quote from, but where things are so bad that the first task of, of intelligent men is to outline the scale of the depths to which we've sunk. It, well, it was Orwell. And, all men, yeah. um, and and it's all about how the state has got too large, conservatives have moved away from the principles that they believe in, True. we've got to deregulate, we've got to cut taxes. And there is a fundamental issue that we have in Britain. We, 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 we live in a country that expects um, European levels of social, social policy and American levels of taxation, so that's a problem. Um, but it took, even through all of the, you read through all of the things he wants to do, he wants to scrap the Equalities Act, he wants to cut spending here, and obviously everybody's completely committed to NHS reform, which uh, you have to, ask at some point, well, if it's so easy, it would have been managed more swiftly. But it's not, not, not a quick answer. But even when you get all the way through this, at the end of this, his solution is that public spending needs to get back to the levels it was under Tony Blair. Or rather, or rather um, the, the tax burden needs to get lower, yeah. uh, levels it was under Tony Blair. So, you know, if you're a conservative looking at this in ordinary times, yeah. this is not an outrageous position. This is what you believe in. You believe in the state doing less. You've, you are terrified at the way that the country has moved from your worldview to a, to a world where people do see the government as a solution. One of the reasons why so many conservatives are so down on net zero, why they are such climate change diminishers as opposed to deniers, is because they see it as a backdoor for socialism and statism. And so it is a major ideological issue for them. Uh, but I think the only way through this, and I mean, I, I, it shouldn't take a political genius, certainly someone, someone good enough to get to become prime minister. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, someone good enough to become a politics to become prime minister ought, I think, to be able to see that even if that's your long-term worldview, that's not where we are today. And that actually the logical position is to say there are two phases to my premiership, um, whoever uh, well, she may be, um, and... Um, and that the first phase is get us through this problem and get our country back onto an even keel. We have had you know, 15 years of once-in-a-generation crisis, um, yeah. and we're just going to have to get through this for a bit. And I know, and I believe in the small state every bit as much as you, but come on, we just have to do this. And then after the election, we're going to get back on track and do all the things that we believe in. And I, I think there is no way past that for the Conservatives. I think they have to. So as, as you were like the voice of Mr Frost on the panel, what was his answer? So what would he actually want to cut spending on in this peon to a smaller state? I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was definitely... Were there any actual cuts? There was definitely... A lot of it was deregulation rather than cuts. There was an absolute... You know, as, as you would expect, there was a war on waste. War on war waste. waste. Some, someone should get the um, waste. But I, but I mean, long, oh yes, I think long term, they, he believes in, you know, aggressively revisiting the structure of the NHS and, you know, the way... I, I don't actually mean that in terms of privatisation, but in terms of the way it functions. One of the problems I think they have is that there are big arguments to be had about reform of the NHS, but they require quite a lot of front-loaded spending. You know, if you want to improve... What, what, two of the best ways to recalibrate the way the NHS works, and the NHS what we always think about as hospitals rather than doctors. It actually improved the, the quality of social care and improved the quality of primary health care. That yeah. Actually, you have fewer people coming into emergency care. But that's fr that requires substantial front-loaded spending, which is not what they want to do at the moment. No. 
And, and the real way to make a difference is to think about the wider determinants of health, not to obsess just about absolutely the, uh, at, at, at hospitals. So you could do a huge amount um, by you know thinking about you know, I mean, you know, housing, income, employment. Indeed, you know, getting people the right device at the right time. But it's all it's all it doesn't fit with the political narrative, and it's very difficult to get a focus on it. Well, I mean, there are odd things. For example, why they will not lift the cap on medical students seems to me a completely baffling position for a country which wants to stop importing, you know, doctors. I mean, that's not our actual reveal preference. Hmm? Our actual reveal preference is that we're ramping up or... But absolutely, but ostensibly that is not the position. Okay, that's ostensibly the position, no. It seems to me a strange thing when you're going on about um, people at university doing all the wrong subjects yes, to have a cap on the number of people who can actually study something you need. Okay, the, um, uh, uh, very good. Right, let's touch on what we, have, what we haven't touched on, but there's a few questions on nationalisation. It's around, we get asked it a lot. Do you want to take this one on? Uh, is non-UK ownership of our utilities causing a cross-subsidy abroad? This is like, are oh, the EDF, are they taking our British pounds and giving it to the French government? No, they're not, everyone. Uh, uh, so should we just nationalise everything or not? What do you reckon? God, um... What what a question! Um. <laughs> people ask, like, I mean, even like sensible people, like so. Nicola Sturgeon's like nationalisation is the answer. I mean, broadly, the issue we've got is the people making the windfalls aren't the people selling us the energy, right? Okay, this is it. There's a centric is like the only really halfway housey uh, option. The others no longer produce the energy themselves, so they're not making the windfalls. So nationalising the people selling us energy doesn't make any difference to the underlying problem, which is we need to somehow decide how we're going to pay for the gap between what we want to pay on the retail price and what the market's telling us, the European market is telling us on the wholesale price. So I, I think the only, I mean, and this, this is the half the Labour Party as well thinks this is like the answer. I kind of think whatever you think on, whether, whether you're pro-nationalisation or pro-privatisation of energy suppliers, it doesn't help you much today's problem. Although mechanistically, so say, say you do Keir Starmer's plan, right? come in, you cap prices, maybe you don't do it at today's level, but you do it at a level. Your then options are either pay the companies for the gap between the wholesale and retail, or let them soak up like 10% of it, but then you're going to be paying them, or you nationalise them as they go bust. Those are our only two options. Well, as they go bust is an option, yeah. I yeah, as they go bust, that's, that's, your that's I mean, basically your choice. It's, it's, a, it's a massive, whatever your views on nationalisation, it's a massive distraction that isn't going to solve the problem today. And the trend and you it's a cost. the reason you raised earlier, which is once you nationalise the suppliers, Good luck extricating yourself from the energy subsidy you've put in place because you nationalised them. But anyway, but they're, so the Treasury are not keen, or they weren't keen in the first place. Anyway, they're, but they're the problem. Which ones? Treasury. Oh, the Treasury's the problem. Treasury. I wasn't sure who was the problem. Uh, I mean, lots of, lots of places are the problem because the world's gone uh, slightly mad. Right, OK, we need to start uh, wrapping up. But I think, I think there's more questions, in, not from you lot. You lot were useless. <laughs> I didn't see a single hand up the whole time. Like, that is this national... Sorry, there's a hand there. It's too late now, mate. We finished. Like, they, um, we needed hands to be going up. Someone stood there with a mic all the time. You basically lowered the Resolution Foundation's morale. But people online, more questions than at any event I think we've ever done, which kind of does speak to the fact that this is, you know... This is, you, know, you usually can see what the big issue facing politics is at any given time. Anyone that can't see it today is kind of, you know, needs to be in a different business because it's so large, so central, uh, and it's going to dominate, you know, what's coming in the months ahead. So thank you very much for your questions on that. Can we say thank you to our panel for educating us on that um, business? Uh, we hope to see you all at a Resolution Foundation event soon with the Living Funders uh, Foundation. I think we're going to be talking about this most weeks between now and Christmas. See you then, everybody. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. 
You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.